Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hi, I'm Jo Evans and welcome to Series 5 of Cross Section. We hope that you've had a wonderful Easter break. I'm joined, as almost always, by Danny Webster, Peter Linus and Alicia Edmund. I think a great way to kick off Series 5 would just to give the listeners a little insight into how you like to spend your holidays. So, Danny, if I can come to you first, what's what's something that sort of captures how you spent your Easter holiday? Oh, what captures it? I'm not sure this really captured it. I actually, yeah, so Easter holiday had a great time with family, but last weekend I spent quite a lot of time smashing up concrete, trying to destroy and dig out an old concrete shed base that is still mostly lurking at the bottom of our garden. So I've got a few more weekends worth of work to come. I like that. I like bringing in a bit of a spin of something that might surprise the listener. Alicia, let's come to you next. Well, for me, uh, every day was spent <laughs> wine and food. So, yes, uh, over the Lord's table. Even on Easter Sunday, we had a service that incorporated a meal, which was uh, was great. And also to add, some of you know that I am a city girl at heart, but I was out in the countryside over the Easter weekend. So I enjoyed the country air. Believe it or not, there's more to Essex than Towie. So, yeah, that was a nice treat going in through the meadows. Hey, don't say that we're not an educational podcast, eh? Last but not least, Peter Linus. Uh, well, I definitely got a break, but the most maybe the most interesting was we d- uh, made a multicolored mega Jenga tower with my kids as a craft project for an EA project that's up and coming. That's very very exciting. I spent part of my Easter holiday at Word Lives which is perhaps not surprising. What was a a shock for most of the people on the lovely Pontin site in Prostatin, North Wales, was that about halfway through the week, the water stopped working on site. So, which meant that from the main stage, the phrase had to be said, uh, what is it? If it's yellow, let it mellow. If it's brown, wash it down. Oh gosh. Great. Thanks for taking us there, Joe. (laughs) Shocking stuff, right? (laughs) This is going to be a bit of an Earth Day focused podcast. We're actually going to hear very little from the lovely cross-section team that I have before me, because the large majority of this podcast is going to be an interview with Laura Young, better known as Less Waste Laura, who's a Christian climate activist. I'll be talking to her in just a little bit. But before, before then, the listeners have missed you the last couple of weeks. So I thought, let's take a relevant environmental story from the week and let's let's all weigh in let's share our thoughts and it's really around the sporting world and environmental protest we've seen in the last week at the grand national a group called animal rising was protesting and then at the snooker championships in the crucible in sheffield there was a just stop oil protest as one individual managed to get on top of a table and release a whole load of orange powder made for some, well, the most exciting snooker I've ever seen, that's for sure. There's also a planned protest coming up this weekend. So it's currently coming up to half 12 on Thursday, but come Sunday, there's planned protest by Extinction Rebellion in London which is the same time as the London Marathon, which in theory it's not. Just to interrupt you there with the breaking news, Extinction Rebellion apparently have reached a deal with the London Marathon to say that they will help them police the marathon against other protests. So there had been significant expectation that Extinction Rebellion would be uh, disrupting the marathon, but they've said that they won't be, and they instead will be helping the London Marathon to uh, police it. Oh, well, what a twist. Well, okay, point standing, talking about sports and, and protests. Share your thoughts with me, team. What, what, do you, what do you make of it? Is this a good way to get your voice heard? It's a good way to get your voice heard because we've just named some of those groups three times, but that's the problem. So Extinction Rebellion, I'll name them because they have essentially repented to some extent and said we were losing people to the cause because of how we did it. The other groups, the snooker table group, should should not be named people should not be named pictures should not be put out because that's what people want 
And I think it is a pretty selfish protest. And there's a certain irony in that because they're campaigning against the selfishness of others in using these resources and not stewarding the environment. They're doing it a selfish way. I think it, particularly in sport, I think it's harsh. I'm up for a protest and people should have the right to do that. This is a bit sneaky and they're jumping on somebody else's publicity. And I do think it's a bit underhand and particularly for sporting events. Imagine being leading London Marathon and trying to think all the time about protesters hijacking your event. Came out hard on that one there, Peter. I like that. I like that. I guess my frustration, particularly with the Grand National, is how I have seen some commentators, friends and others, compare it to the moment. We've had this in history. Uh, do you not recall the suffragettes uh, running out to put uh, a rosette on the king's horse in order to talk about women's rights and women's right to vote and be part of public life? and comparing it to that. And I completely disagree. I don't think that the Grand National protest was about or is comparable with the suffragette movement. So I think that's something that slightly angered me a little bit. Essentially, what is a process? It's about disruption. It's about capturing a grand event uh, and media. And back in the day, back in the day, the suffragettes movement, that was a milestone piece. But now there's always a need to kind of do the anti in a social media digital world, a simple march is not sufficient anymore. It's about being provocative. It's about being annoying. It's about being irritating. It's about hijacking other opportunities uh, so that the headlines continue to carry your version or your message forward rather than tackling the main core issue of climate uh, crisis or injustice uh, across the world. So... I'm slightly annoyed at the comparisons with the suffragette movement. So I'm going to take the unlikely position of being the more positive one around the protests. This, this weekend, there is a large climate march taking place in London. It's called the big one, but we're not talking about this. Mm. We're not talking about the actual official climate march that lots of charities and lots of organisations are in to try and uh, raise awareness of the issue and to draw attention to the need to address climate change. We're talking about someone climbing onto a snooker table and throwing orange powder everywhere, or people getting arrested as they try to disrupt the Grand National, or whether or not the London Marathon will be disrupted. I think if you consider an issue is of sufficient gravity, then actually we do need to be calling attention to it and finding the ways to do that. Now, we might not like it, but protest is disruptive. And I want to support the right to protest and the right to disrupt in a way that isn't violent. I think there is a question around criminal damage where actually people should be held responsible for the criminal damage they do. So I think you can hold those two things in tension. Someone can still be arrested and charged with criminal damage, but actually, as a point of protest and raising awareness of an issue, I think it's effective. And I don't think we, just because we're uncomfortable with it, we should necessarily see it as illegitimate. Yeah, I think I'm more with Danny on this. I think we've got to be really careful when it comes to any suggestion of any sort of policing or restriction of protest. Whilst I might not like all of these, I, for me particularly with Animal Rising at the Grand National, a horse actually ended up dying at the Grand National. And the trainer's view is that it was because it got so stressed by the protest. So I, I just feel like, oh, you've, you've, yeah, that's the exact opposite of the message that you were carrying. And I think we can't ever separate sports and politics we've done that on this show we've talked about how the two go together and yeah I think I think they can't be separated but okay that's good to hear your opinions but let's push it a little bit further what what are your red lines when it comes to breaking the law or causing disruption yourself I believe there's been arrests around the just stop oil protests at snooker What's an issue big enough or what are the lines that would cause you to, to cross and do something arrest worthy? Well, I'll, I'll take the, the cliche. I'm not even the cliche. The, the examples in recent history. I've just finished reading a, a book about the Korean revival in 1907 and how as the years went on, I think it's in the 1940s or 50s, 
there was a law that was passed by the Japanese occupation and rule that was saying that they needed to bow to the Shinto idol. Every church needed to engage in that explicitly and to do that meant that churches were to be closed, that they were to be considered treason, that they were to be considered as a threat to the nation. Uh, And I think something like that, that is enshrined in law, that's calling me a Christian to bow to another form of uh, idol worship. That's my hard line. That's my absolutely not even going uh, to do that. And again, similarly with protests, there is a consequence to that. I do that knowing that there's likelihood that I would face arrest, that I would face imprisonment. Uh, And so I have to be mindful of that. And I pray that the Lord would find me faithful if anything like that did come to the UK where there is explicit legislation talking about that I need to either stop attending church, I might bring up COVID if the conversation allows, or uh, should uh, I, I can't, my faith or being a Christian in the workplace is problematic. I think there comes a point uh, where I need to count the costs, as it were, in, in those spaces and be prepared to make a stand, not necessarily be violent, but say, actually, you know, my colours to the masters is that with Christ. So... I guess that's the extreme versions of that. And there's many of that in history. So, yeah. Peter, Danny, care to weigh in? Well, I'd want to echo that. I mean, I think I, I thought freedom of religion, freedom of belief for myself and others, and also fundamental dignity and justice issues are going to provoke us there. It is hard to do because in the UK, the reality is, I don't want to, like, we're not under that, those kind of pressures. That doesn't mean that's guaranteed forever, but the reality is we have mm-hmm. deeply ingrained set of rights that do protect us. So these are a luxury conversation in the sense that it is a hypothetical like i would definitely i hope i'd have the faith as alicia said in these moments to take that kind of stand because the consequences for many others are significantly higher and that's part of the point of these other protests these are often about to be very careful like the phrase luxury but like these are not the fundamental core rights of the human dignity of another person right in this moment and that's where i have some i, I absolutely support the right to protest but I have an issue of how some of them are doing it because uh, of the questions being raised. Climate change does begin to push right into this on a global scale because it is actually affecting the dignity and justice of others globally. So yes, there are there are significant questions as to what, what how we do that, but also what's the strategy in the long term? My getting arrested is largely irrelevant. What I want to do is change the law. There's other ways of doing that. I think it is. It's not only whether I'd be willing to break the law, but how I would be willing to break the law and what that would look like. And I think that has to respond to the situation. Like, I think there are circumstances, as both Peter and Alyssa have said, where I would be willing to break the law if I was requiring to do something that I couldn't in good conscience do. But the question also is, well, are there situations where I might potentially violently resist the authorities because of the laws that they are passing and what they are doing. And that pushes it another threshold up, actually. What action will I take in response to laws that I consider unjust? I'm not quite a pacifist, but I'm almost there. So for me, I would require a very high bar uh, to engage in any kind of violent conflict. But I think that does push you to think, well, what are the things that I consider as that important that I would be willing to do those things for? And I think we need to almost right-size our response to the things that we care about, because otherwise we end up getting outraged about things that don't matter that much, but kind of far too moderate, perhaps, about things that we should be more outraged about. Um, and I think sometimes it is helpful to reflect on what measures we would be or wouldn't be willing to take. I personally find 1 Peter 2 13 to 17 very helpful on this I won't read it all but the start starts with submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority whether that's the emperor emperor as a supreme authority or the governors etc etc so it makes it very clear that as Christians we're called to submit to the law but then verse 17 says show proper respect to everyone love the family of believers fear God honor the emperor and, and just before that, it says live as God's slaves. And what I find really helpful about that is I think we're absolutely called to submit the law unless it stops us from doing verse 17, fearing God, living as God's slaves, loving the family of believers. But 
the kind of I don't know get out clause of that is that some of that's going to be down to conscience and where we feel that what we're being called to do stops us from doing verse 17 stuff is going to be different for different people so messy messy things you can follow all the work that we do as an advocacy team and as a cross-section team by following us on twitter at ea uk news on instagram at evangelical alliance and you can email us cross.section at eauk.org we look at that inbox every single week hi alicia hi joe So in this world of hybrid working in which we are now in, I decided to work for my local coffee shop this morning. I went in, I ordered a caramel latte and I got to work. They got me thinking, what else could I get for the price of a coffee? Well, I'm glad that you asked, Jo. For £3 a month, you could become a member of the Evangelical Alliance and truly make a difference to reaching communities with the gospel and strengthening the evangelical voice in government and in policymaking. You'll receive a welcome pack on arrival, more valuable than a caramel latte, and access to our quarterly membership magazine idea on your doorstep. So to find out more, why not visit eauk.org forward slash join us oh brilliant we're now gonna go over and listen to um, a little something i made earlier an interview i recorded with christian environmental activist laurie young laurie young is a climate activist environmental scientist and ethical influencer in 2022 she won scottish influencer of the year in the inspiration category for work advocating for climate and environmental justice online She was listed as one of the top climate creators to watch in 2023 by Peak Action and Harvard. Laura worked for Tear Fund as the COP26 coordinator and is now an ambassador for them. And she speaks regularly in the media. And on top of all of that, Laura is currently doing her PhD in climate resilience work. Hi, Laura. It's good to meet you. Hi, thanks for having me on. That I just read. Uh, Can you tell us... On a very boring note, how do you finish your time between all these different hats that you have, all these different plates that you're spinning? Oh my goodness. I mean, I think mostly through a very detailed, colour-coded Google calendar. I sort of have to be very clever with the way I divide up my time and make sure that, yeah, I've got space to have three meals a day, get outside, get some sunshine. But to be honest, I think ever since I was at university, I've always juggled maybe is the word a lot of different things whether it's studies with a little bit of work and a little bit of extra volunteering or hobbies and so I guess I'm used to being a busy person but the one thing I will say is there's definitely seasons what a Christian word the season (laughs) the season of busyness but I think because there is that you recognize that sometimes you're just going to be flat out but it's okay because it is just for a period of time and I think one of my most important things is booking in rest and so when there has been really busy times whether it's because there's big conferences or big campaigns going on it's about knowing when's the next break making it really substantial and and being really clear with boundaries when you're like and it means I'm not going to do emails or I'm not going to pick up these things and I think over time I've just got used to planning that in oh that's very very useful so out of out of all those things and And to be clear, I have only just scratched the surface on the things that Laura has done and achieved in the last few years. But out of everything you've done and have worked on, what is a personal highlight for you? Do you know, I I always think about this question because I'm really blessed to get to do lots of different cool projects, whether it's going to global conferences on climate change or getting to speak to lots of different community groups and and be part of really fun projects with different organizations but one of the things that I love to do is to break out of the environmental space as much as possible to talk to people that maybe aren't environmentally minded or people that aren't so on board with what you're talking about and obviously you get to do loads of that in the media because if you're going on radio or tv of course you're speaking to the general public and people will have a really varied I guess thought around the topics that you're speaking on but for me actually something that I found really fun but also led to lots of work and conversations after was in 2019 I actually did a TED talk in Glasgow and the reason I find that so interesting is because in Glasgow it was in the Armadillo quite a famous iconic venue for 
concerts and, and events like TED Talks. And there was 3,000 people there. Wow. And for eight minutes, I got their attention. I got to speak to them about something I was passionate about. But also, they weren't there to hear me talk. They were there to hear everybody talk on a really wide variety of subjects. And so I sort of had this feeling of, for eight minutes, I just get everybody's full attention. And whether whether they like it or not, I'm going to talk to them about environmental issues. And actually, from that, I found it led to a lot of conversations afterwards a lot of people thinking about oh maybe I hadn't thought about that before and what what could I do and I sort of love those moments where you get to break out of the environmental eco chamber echo chamber (laughs) just for a second and and kind of talk to people so that that was definitely a highlight but but for that reason rather than I don't know it was still a cool thing to do but actually it was to kind of see impact beyond the normal group of people you engage Mm. with. If, if, If any of our listeners haven't watched Laura's TED Talk, I'd really recommend going on to YouTube and finding it. There's this moment when you get all, is it a family of four, all their plastic milk bottles from the year? Oh, and yeah. It's, yeah, it's really impactful. So I would recommend that to any of our listeners. <laughs> Just tell us briefly about your PhD. Yeah, so my PhD, which is like the main thing I spend my time on, although it's fairly new. So I started it at the end of last year, the end of 2020. So my PhD is looking at how we build resilience to climate change. So, you know, here in Scotland, which is where I'm based and in the UK, we are starting to see climate change impacts. And a lot of it is to do with flooding. A lot of it is to do with drought. It's very water orientated. And so I'm looking at how do we build resilience in the places that we live? How do we do that through nature-based solutions? So working with nature, how do we get the most benefits out of the projects? But there's a, a lens that I'll be looking at it through, which is community engagement, because I want to know how do we effectively and inclusively engage the community in the way that we build the places that we live in? And how do we do it in a way that, I don't know, enhances stewardship, gets people thinking about the environment, gets people taking action and looking after it. And so it's kind of, looking at all of these things in a really holistic way so that we can get the most out of when we have the opportunity to change, especially the urban places that we live, but do it in a way that that brings benefit. And so I'm kind of six, seven months in, very much in this drowning in research papers and, and kind of getting up to speed on the topic. But that is a little bit of a nugget of of what I'm doing, what I'm researching, and I'll be doing that till the end of 2026 so this is my next kind of big project I'll be wow it sounds so interesting I guess it's so exciting because come 2026 or whenever it is I guess the hope is that other people will use your findings to actually do things differently oh yeah and I mean my project is actually funded by the Scottish government through something called the Hydro Nations Project. And it's hopefully going to be really applied. It's going to influence policy and, and practice. And it's going to create some frameworks and, and template principles, which mean that we can do this stuff, this work, really, really well. And so that is the hope. So exciting. You, you've kind of touched on this already. In all the environmental work that you do, how has your faith kind of shaped and influenced that do you know in the beginning not at all (laughs) so I sort of got a passion for environmental issues when I was at school I kind of fell in love with the subject geography and after school went to study geography and environmental science at university and this was around the time so I studied between 2014 and 2018 for my undergraduate and this was around the time that we really started to get environmental awareness at the forefront of whether it was TV with things like Blue Planet or whether it was news stories about climate change. It was also when we started to really see lots of protests and actions quite mainstream about environmental issues. And so my whole world when I was kind of late teens, early 20s, at that time of university was all about environmental issues. It's when I really decided, okay, I think this is my well, I didn't call it a calling at that time. I was just like, this is what I want to commit my career Mm -hmm. to. This is what I want to be passionate about. I want to change my lifestyle, but I also want to try and be a part of influencing greater things. And to me, it was just because I loved my subject. I loved the world. I loved being outside and wanted to kind of save it or not save it, but at least look after it. But interestingly, the one part of my life that never spoke about the environment was my church life. So I grew up in a great church, lovely church, but it never spoke about environmental issues. We didn't talk about 
creation cares, the kind of terms we know now. Mm -hmm. We didn't speak about climate justice. We didn't really talk about any environmental issues. And it was actually while I was at university that I really struggled with this because I thought, hold on, broad stroke here, but like Christians are called to be good people, <laughs> like mm -hmm. to look yeah. after people, to look after the world. But like, why are we not talking about this? And in all the spaces I was in environmentally, like there was no Christian presence or at least faith was not something that was discussed. It was not the reason anyone was there. And actually this was quite hard for me to kind of navigate. And, and I actually went and almost confronted my minister from the church that I grew up in. And I was like, why are we not talking about this? What is going on? I'm absolutely mind boggled as to why all of my life, my peers, the media, like everything seems to be talking about the environment except church. And in a classic minister way, he was like, well, maybe you should go and think about that and we can do something together. But it sort of took, took me on this journey, at least, to think about, OK, if I start reading the Bible from the very beginning, but try and read it through a lens of environmentalism, of climate change, of climate justice, I wonder what will what will come out. And if anyone wants to do that, you only have to read a few pages. It's pretty easy because you just bump into the Genesis story. And some of the very first commandments we were given is to take responsibility for the natural world that we get to call home and of course you learn about the brokenness and, and where that stems from but I think for me it, it's actually been my faith has first of all it kind of slotted in when I started to go on this journey and realized oh yeah of course the bible talks about this it's just the church that's been slow to realize this but then I think as I went on that journey from first just thinking okay it's a responsibility it's a genesis thing to then realizing that there's also loads of organizations that do so much deeper theology on this. Tear Fund was a big part of that journey for me, but there's so many others. I think really the moment for me that faith took over as a driver for what I do was realizing that actually it's a gospel thing. We've mm. taken the gospel and we've shrunk it down to be this individual thing, which of course it is. Absolutely, God sent his son for all of us, for individually, for me, for Laura, for mm -hmm. you, Joe. But actually, we've shrunk that down to way smaller than it is. And actually, when you blow it open to, to what it is, and even thinking about John 3.16, so often we say, for God so loved the world, we then go, for God so loved his people, for God so loved Laura. But actually, the original word in the text was cosmos. It was everything. God sent his son for all that he had created. And, and we aren't separate from creation. We are part of it. And I think when I had that shift in theology, that was when faith became the driver for what I do. So when I wake up now, I don't think, okay, I'm going to go to work and I'm going to do these things because it's a good thing. I wake up and go, I'm doing this because it's a God thing. And this is what he's called us all to do. Obviously, I'm taking it a step further because it's my career, as in not everyone is going to end up working in this space. But actually, it's the reason all of us, all Christians, should be thinking about not just the environment, but climate justice, people that are impacted by the way we treat the environment and, and we should be acting on that. And, and so it's been a journey for me over the past, I guess, kind of five, six, seven years to realise that. And I'm glad to see that that is something that churches are also going on a journey with. Mm, so well said. My, my pastor gets very excited about the Noahic covenant and when God sort of hit restart on creation that he wanted to redeem not just people it might be people sort of first and foremost but that it was the animals and the land itself ah oh, yeah so well said and I guess just pull pull on that thread just a little bit more how how did you yourself come to be a follower of Jesus how did you come to be a Christian do you know I mean very blessed to grow up in a Christian family so both my immediate household, my brother, my mother, my dad, we were a Christian family. We went to church and I really enjoyed it, went to all the kind of camps and all that mm. sort of stuff. I absolutely loved it. And I was baptized as a sort of older teenager because I really felt, you know, this was real and it was real for me, but also felt that it wasn't just enough to know that it was real. I had to make that commitment and that profession of faith. But I mean, certainly I was baptized and became a Christian before leaving home before mm. moving out I moved out when I was 17 to go to university and I think certainly although I was a Christian and I and I don't doubt for a second that that was not true but actually it was at university when I was removed from that space removed from that mm. family unit 
that I actually had to think about faith and personal faith and what it meant. And it was definitely not a smooth journey through university. Mm. Actually, Sunday mornings are really great when you don't have to go to church. And that's (laughs) certainly something I struggled with, is realising that you had to get up and get out and, and go. But actually, I think it was through those years. And to me, actually, my own faith journey links to the environmental story because at the same time that I was thinking about faith in general I was also thinking about what is my purpose in life why am I doing all this environmental stuff that's nothing to do with my Christian background and so for me it was through those years as well that I realized actually I have this individual faith and and what that means for my life and probably made a recommitment Mm. (laughs) during that time even though I'd been baptized before but yeah and, and so certainly being in my early 20s that was when I really started to develop a church going habit and a personal faith mm. and and I've been on that journey through my 20s and when I moved to do this PhD I also lived on my own for the first time I'd always had flatmates before and I think for me making church a commitment making faith part of my everyday life that's that's something that I'm still on a journey with oh that's brilliant so after recording this interview we're going to record the normal kind of cross-section episode I guess that will sit around this interview and one of the things I want us to talk about are the the protests that have been going on this week and which are planned for the weekend so we had all around sporting events really so we had just stop oil get on a snooker table at the snooker championships and kind of release that orange powder there was animal rising at the grand national which are a a a group largely focused around animal rights but there's definitely an environmental link in there I suppose I just wanted to ask, what do you think of, obviously you you do so much advocacy seeking change in the way we function as a nation when it comes to the environment. What do you make of this type of advocacy? I mean, personally, I think we need a variety of different ways to raise awareness for issues. And I love the people that have the courage to do some actions like this and actually especially when we're talking about the snooker championships or sporting events you know the disruption is minimal for what is a really major issue but I think and this argument has been said so many times in history we have seen large protests about many different Mm. issues social justice issues whether it's civil rights the women's right to vote Mm -hmm. or any other issue. Civil disobedience, disruptive advocacy has been a massive tool in that. And so I think there is a place for it, a legitimate place for it. And and I think if anything, if we could just get, especially governments and big businesses to move faster, we wouldn't need to be doing these things. We wouldn't need to be throwing powder over pool tables or taking these direct actions. But I also think about often these groups are right and it's us that are slow to act. And I take the example of Inchalate Britain is a classic example where they went and sat on roads and mm-hmm. people got really annoyed because they were trying to get to work. And of course, it's inconvenient. And of course, it's inconveniencing regular everyday people who are just trying to get to work. But the funny thing is, is, you know, they were doing these protests a couple of years ago. And one of the big things that we've seen is with the cost of living and the war in Ukraine, and oil prices spiking is we've seen real fuel poverty and real people sitting in homes that are absolutely inadequate for keeping in heat and for keeping families warm. And they had been calling on the government, this group, Insulate Britain, to be insulating infrastructure and homes Mm. across the UK, obviously for environmental reasons, but also because we want people to not be going cold. We don't want people living in damp and moldy houses. And part of me thinks Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor at the time, can't actually remember if he is now, but, you know, he came up with this budget not too long ago, a few months ago, which included support for insulating homes in the wake of this fuel poverty and realisation that families were going cold, people were dying in their homes because of cold-related things. We had mould pouring through the the walls Mm. of, of our infrastructure. And my honest first thought after hearing that budget was, If only you'd listened to the Insulate Britain people that were sitting on the road two years ago, we would have had two years worth of time to get insulation into people's lofts, insulation into people's walls, double glazing in their windows. And I think often these tactics, we we do end up looking back going, we wish in hindsight, which is always 2020, in hindsight, 
it would have been great to have listened to this and put this stuff in place. And so I think there absolutely is a place for this. It gets us talking about it, like on this podcast, it gets it on the news. But I think what we're really bad at is taking whether it's tomato soup being thrown over a Van Gogh or orange powder on a snooker table is we often get stuck talking about the action Mm. and not about what they are protesting about and I think that's something that we constantly need to do if I'm brought on to the news to discuss it I briefly mention the action and then talk about okay but here's what the government can be doing about whether it's insulation whether it's about oil fields whether it's about whatever And I think actually we need to be quicker to kind of shift that conversation on. But I mean, I guess finally to end, I haven't done these kind of actions. I've not been anyone who's done these sorts of things. And it's not because I think it's wrong, but I think it's because we need a variety of people in the advocacy and campaigning spaces. And I recognise that this week... I got to go down to Westminster. I got to speak at a parliamentary panel in front of different organisations, media and MPs and a minister. And for me, maybe that wouldn't have been an opportunity if I was known as somebody who was maybe a risk of of doing something quote Mm. controversial. And it's not, that's not the reason I don't do these things, but I recognise that we need people in rooms in parliament. We read people on the boards of multinational corporations. We need people on the streets protesting. And yeah, we need people who are, you know, brave and bold enough and have the skill set and the privilege to be able to do these things that might risk massive disruption. But we need that spectrum mm-hmm. because ultimately it helps shift that conversation on. So on that, talk to us about disposable vapes and what you were doing this week in Parliament. Oh my goodness, disposable vapes, the absolute bane of my life. So if anyone doesn't know what a disposable vape is, vaping was created about 15 years ago as a smoking cessation tool for adults who wanted to quit smoking. So it's a vaporized inhalation. We've all probably seen them, but it's something that doesn't have tobacco. It still has nicotine in it, but it's a way to help people move away from smoking. Obviously, creating the ban for smoking indoors got a lot of people to quit. But of course, we know that we still have a lot of people in our population smoking. And 10, 15 years ago, we saw the rise of vaping. But especially in the last 12 to 18 months, we have seen a real rapid expansion of part of that industry with disposable vapes. So these are kind of colourful devices. They almost look like highlighter pens Mm. and they are um, disposable vapes. So once you start it, you get a number of puffs. Normally it's kind of 600 puffs worth of your vapor nicotine solution and you can use it on the go and when it runs out you just chuck it away but these things are really complex these are mixed materials they are metals plastics and they have a lithium ion battery inside them so it's a disposable electronic device and we don't have disposable electronic devices in our market just now you know your phone you charge it if you've got a smartwatch you charge it if you've got devices in your house that are electrical you plug them in And so it's kind of crazy that we have these disposable electronic devices. But six months ago, I was on a walk with my dog and I'm classic. I'm an avid litter picker. So I'm always picking up bits of litter as I go. And about six months ago, so near the end of last year, 2020, 2022, sorry, I came across what I now discovered are disposable vapes. And basically every day since I've just been finding these everywhere. And it's not unique to me. These things are littered across our nation and um, when I started finding these I was really confused I didn't really know what they were and of course when I discovered that these are single-use disposable electronic devices I was affronted I was like we're supposed to be trying to create a circular economy where we create less waste and recycle a lot of our waste and we're trying to reach net zero but here we have electrical devices that are disposable so I started kind of reaching out to my my political representatives I started reaching out to organizations asking the question is anyone doing anything about this up in Scotland and now in England we've banned things like plastic spoons yet here we have a disposable electronic device and so I went on this kind of investigative research trying to work out if anyone was doing anything about these and there was nothing there was no campaign groups there was no information no research no petitions and as someone who just wants to help try to mitigate harm to our environment I just was left with this decision of like okay I guess I'll just start speaking about it and so over the last six months what started as some tweets and some posts on social media about the problem that is disposable vapes 
we now have a full-blown campaign. And so being on this journey, it's it's been really rapid. And especially people in the campaigning space are, are kind of recognising that this is moving at pace, which is great. But we now have, up in Scotland, we have the Scottish government have put out an urgent review to work out what are the environmental impacts of these devices. We've had a Scottish councils writing to support the ban, to ask the government to put one in place, and many more lined up for meetings in the next couple of weeks and months. We've had loads of research now put out both on the environmental impact in terms of the amount of waste, the fire risk that lithium batteries are, the problem in terms of public health. Lots of young people are taking this up because it's so accessible and it's such a trend. And so we've got loads happening, loads of organisations coming together. But the big beast that is Westminster, we are trying to really get to the heart on this issue. And so this week, that was a long winded way to get to the point of your question. (laughs) But this week I was down in Westminster at something called an all party parliamentary group. This one was on the topic of the environment, but we were having a discussion about disposable vapes and whether they should be banned and it was a panel consisting of myself there was a financial times journalist who's been doing a lot of work on the kind of business side and how the business has been failing to meet lots of regulations around waste or trading standards and, and age sales we had a, an mp caroline johnson who's a doctor talking about the kind of youth vaping epidemic and the health impacts of that we had a policy expert from the green alliance talking about the kind of policy options um, we had someone from the vaping industry association I guess to balance the conversation and and kind of keep it fair to hear their side of the story and of course we had a couple other MPs and we had the Minister for the Environment uh, Rebecca Pow there to I guess talk about from the government side so you know really trying to push Westminster as well being from Scotland often you just get put punted up to say right go deal with that up in the devolved nations but you know I want to crack this across the UK I don't want this to just be a Scottish thing and so that was a real step forward to I guess push the government to think about this issue and and see that actually we've got health and environmental and youth groups all coming together on this issue to kind of clearly say that that we need to ban these things. Ah I really I really hope that goes through and I think it's such a powerful um testimony really of the the power of individual advocacy and the power that we all have if there's an issue we really care about to sort of seek change whether that's like you like your first port of call by contacting our local representatives and then the power we have to yeah to make our voices heard through these means I guess so we we put on our social media channels um, you know, we're having Laurie Young on the podcast. What would you like to ask her? And one of the questions we got back, I think this is someone who wants you to challenge Christians, is my interpretation of the question. But <laughs> so this is your moment. But someone asked, what theology prevents Christians from engaging in environmental issues? So I don't know if that's something you thought about, but that's the question. Always. Oh my goodness. I think this is something that I've had a lot of experience with. When I worked for Tear Fund, we'd regularly be engaging with churches or church leaders or church groups. Um, and this isn't something that the church is, I guess, united on. And even now, you know, I've, I've moved to a new city. I go to a church that maybe isn't really moving in the environmental space. So this is a challenge even for myself, kind of moving to a new place and, and starting that again. I mean, I think a lot of it comes down to, I think eschatology is the fancy word for it, probably mm. I learned that somewhere, about your kind of <laughs> theology of the end days. And I think there has been this historic view that is this world isn't coming with us. So it kind of doesn't matter what happens to the physical environment. And also linking that with Genesis and knowing that when sin entered the world, our relationship with creation broke. And so like, that's why it is the way it is. That's why we have these bad things. And I think I want to challenge that because our bodies, physical bodies, aren't coming with us. But it doesn't mean we trash them and totally Mm. stop looking after them. If you break your arm, you don't think, oh, well, it's fine. This arm's not coming with me. I'm not going to go to the doctor and get it fixed. We still look after it because God created us in his image and created our bodies that are for for us to do our work from and, and we look after them. And I think that extends to creation. You know, in Genesis 2 verse 15, I think it is, you know, we have responsibility to tend the Garden of Eden, tend where we live, look after it. And I think that's something we've lost. And I think if you look through the New Testament, we have this real connection with the earth, connection with giving it a rest. There was all this Sabbath year, the, mm. the kind of jubilee theology. And there was all this great content, actually, in the Old Testament about how to work with, tend the land and respect it. 
And I think over time that's just got broken because, well, I'm speaking in a kind of UK, Western, global North perspective here, but, you know, we aren't tenant farmers anymore. We we aren't out working the land every day. We're sitting in offices or, or we're working from home. And and I think for us, we've, we've maybe just disconnected from lots of those passages because they feel irrelevant just because our employment has maybe changed over the last few hundred years. And so I think we need to get back to that and realise that even though we might not be a farmer, or we might not be a gardener, we're still called to look after this world. But I think also we need to realise that just because this world's not coming with us, generations behind us until the Lord comes back, that we don't want to trash it for them. And so I think there's there's that big picture. But I think also we need to look at this as a justice issue. And what the Bible talks about very clearly is our call for justice, to look out for our neighbours who are impacted at the hands of many different justice issues and see that environmental issues, whether it's pollution, air pollution, water pollution, climate change, wildfires, droughts. It's impacting people around the world, our brothers and sisters, our neighbours. And we should be doing what we can to stand with them and and make changes to mostly our lifestyles that are fueling a lot of this and realise that that we need to be taking action in terms of environmental care, creation care, because it's a justice issue. And so I think I would just urge people, and this is what I do, you know, when I talk to people, I say, when you read the Bible, what lens are you looking at it through? And and how can you change that lens to see how the Bible talks about Mm. creation care and climate justice? But I think one of my, my main struggles is, I think when God asks us to do work on this earth, we think about the great commission and the great commandment, and we think about those separately. And actually, we do our best work for God when we do those together, when we go out to tell the good news, but we do that in a way that is also bringing justice, is seeing the the whole picture, is is not just walking past someone and telling them the gospel and then leaving. It's about looking at that person and seeing all the things that has impacted, all the justice issues that we've been called to do and and addressing all of it together. And so I think for churches, I think sometimes the main barrier is we're too focused on one specific thing. We've shrunk that gospel down and we're only looking at it from that perspective. And and we almost see whether it's climate change, whether it's whether it's refugee rights, whether it's poverty locally, whatever the other social justice issues are, often the church sees those as fringe things. And we're like, okay, those are really great if we can do them, if we've got time. We only want to focus on this one tiny bit of the Bible. And I think that's where we need to break that open. And I mean, an example for me, this is such a long answer. I do apologize. I'm so passionate about talking to no, churches about this though. But I think for wonderful. me, it's about saying, I think when I went to, so COP26, the climate conference that came to Glasgow, the United Nations, hundreds of thousands of people came to Glasgow. That was a whole thing about climate change. And it was two weeks long. It was at the end of 2021. And the thing that I found really profound was I was working for Tear Fund at the time. We were there to talk about climate change, there to do campaigning and advocacy for climate justice issues. I have never spoken about Jesus more than I have in those two weeks Wow! because people were asking, why do you do the work that you do? Who do you work for? Tear fund. I mean, that's an easy end to talk about Mm. God, but actually people are saying, why do you do the work that you do? Why are you so passionate? And you get to say, because there's this God that created the world and there's this guy called Jesus who came to the earth and he came for all of us and we're part of creation and you get to almost share the Mm. gospel in that moment, but we're doing it because we've been called to do this holistic piece of work be part of the ministry of reconciliation here on earth be God's hands and feet and I think we need to blow it open and say see including any social justice issue in your church it doesn't minimize the gospel it makes it greater it makes Mm. it richer and actually it sees the fullness of it and I think that's the heart of the conversation rather than just turning up to a church and be like right I want to talk about recycling and I want to talk about people walking to church rather than driving it's actually about right I want to talk about the gospel and I think often that puts people on the back foot because they're like oh I didn't think you were going to come and mention the gospel word Mm. but actually that's what it's all about and I think that is the conversation you want to have and and sometimes it takes a while Other times it's completely instant. Someone comes up and goes, wow, I just never thought about it that way. I'm totally on board. But certainly that's the conversation I want to have rather than, hey, I'm just going to cherry pick some verses that talk about the environment and and that's why we should care. Actually, it's about getting to John 3, 16. It's about getting to Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and talking about the fullness of God's work and God's love and creation. And that's that's how you you start that conversation. Hopefully that helps. Massively. Oh, you know, I... It's very inspirational. I can see why you won that award. (laughs) 
penultimate question for you today. Um, in in preparing to, to speak to you today, I did what any good interviewer did and did a deep dive internet stalk of all the work you've done and your website and things. And, and something that really struck me, particularly about your website, yeah, like I said, the work, is that I guess what might be labelled as a Christian piece of work or where you've spoken about environmental issues and justice within the Christian within Christian circles and your, again, for want of a better word, secular work, where whether it's the TED Talk or, yeah, loads of the things you've done, they sit at each other. And I don't, I don't think you see that very often in Christian individuals who have form in the public square. So I guess I just wanted to ask how... Do you find that, perhaps you've already answered it, but do you find that those, your work, ever get in the way of each other or have you found that one helps the other? That's that, that's a huge part of what cross-section cross is about, yeah. understanding the world that we live in and, and articulating that in, in words that the world understands as well as being to back that up with our Christian theologies. Yeah, I mean, I guess <laughs> it's interesting because I think I get to bring in work from each side to each side. And so if I'm speaking to a church about climate work, I get to bring in examples from, if we're using the kind of term like the secular world, and I get to discuss all of the spaces that God is definitely moving because God is moving in the climate space, whether there's Christians in there or not. And actually that's why we need to be in those spaces. And so I think I get to bring those examples in. And then in the same way, when I'm in my kind of secular spaces, I get to talk about faith as a driver. I also, sometimes it might not be appropriate in that context to talk about faith, but a lot of my examples of work are examples of church, church stuff. It's churches who have put in wildflower meadows or orchards or putting in bike infrastructure. And I get to just use the term my church or this church, or I was talking to this minister and this youth group. And so I kind of get to to branch that. But actually, I'm, I'm always I'm always weary and nervous about telling this story, but I think it's a really good example. So it's a COP26 story. So again, this kind of the world came to Glasgow to talk about climate justice, to be a part of these negotiations for two weeks. And in the in the lead up to that, so, you know, I worked for Tear Fund. We were doing loads of stuff with churches locally. Like I'm from Glasgow and it was also delayed because of COVID. So instead of just having a year to prepare, we had two years to prepare for this summit. So we really wanted to get churches in Glasgow specifically, but across Scotland, to be engaging in climate work, to be praying for the conference, to be thinking about the spaces that they had, to be really getting involved in the conversation. And over those two years, I really feel like we saw a transformation within the Christian space to even just become confident in kind of talking about these issues, right? And the day COP began, it was this huge, amazing moment. We had interfaith movements doing stuff. We had Christians from all over the world coming to join this. We had prayer events planned. We had worship nights planned. We had all these churches praying and and doing actions and we had services happening. Everything was amazing. And I really felt like the climate movement, the kind of secular climate movement for the first time was like, the Christians are here. Like they've shown up and it was a really positive thing. It was amazing. However, on the first day of COP in a church in Glasgow that shall not be named, a a banner appeared. And this banner was brand in the same colours as the COP conference. So clearly it had been put up for this conference. And the banner simply read, the world's most urgent need is churches preaching Christ crucified, not climate change. And in that moment, two years worth of work between Christians and churches and the climate movement just unraveled by a church that was completely disengaged, that hadn't been part of the conversation. And honestly, in that moment, completely undid so much trust that we'd been able to build. And here was all of these secular groups being like, what the heck? I thought the church was on board. I thought, what is going on? And in that moment, I had people reaching out to me being like, what are you doing? Because I, to them, was the church, was all of Christianity. And I almost had to think, 
in this moment what do we do and I think it was so disheartening because also I thought imagine that banner said free tea coffee wi-fi and a toilet for anyone who's come from around the world to cop conference come in use our church building that's right in the center of glasgow if you need some facilities if you need some warmth come on in and what a chance that would have been to talk about the gospel to talk about christ crucified but no this banner got put up and it got ripped down a couple of days later it wasn't me i have to say that a lot of people thought it was but actually a conversation, of course, then started with with that church in, in specifically, but also more broadly. But I think for me, there has been these moments where there has been a tension between my personal faith, my calling, my churches or churches nearby or Christianity more broadly with the secular space in the same way that it's been the opposite. But I think for me, that reminded me that there is so much work that we need to do. But also it reminded me that when I sit in the secular space, I represent all of Christianity to many people. And it's my, I guess, role to kind of navigate some of those spaces. And actually that is more of the hard bit than it is the other way around. Actually, I feel that's the, the tension. I probably will get in trouble for telling that story because I got in trouble at the time for tweeting about it. But anyway, I think it's a good example. I, I think it's really, it's really helpful. Oh, yeah, brilliant stuff. Laura, it's been such a pleasure to chat to you today. I, I would love if you could just give our listeners one piece of homework. Listeners who might have inspired while they've been listening to this interview, what is one thing they could go away and do to, to live in a more environmental way and glorify God in that? Go and jump on a snooker table with some orange powder. No, I'm only joking. Um, I mean, I think for every individual, <laughs> there'll be some re- really like unique situations. And so I think what I would ask people to do is, is well, maybe two things, because I'm going to chuck prayer in there, but that's a, a normal thing anyway. I think we should be asking God, <laughs> what can I do with what you've given me, with my time, with my resources, and, and what can I do? And you, maybe as a family or as a as a household or even as an individual, just be looking at what you have and, and thinking about the change. And, and I, I don't believe that making little switches will save the planet, but actually it takes people on a journey. I very much started out with being like, okay, I'm going to go plastic free for a year and see what happens. And now I'm at Westminster talking about sustainability things. So I think mm. it can take you on a journey. So look at your life. Maybe it is waste and plastic. Maybe it's a habit for buying loads of fast fashion maybe it's well holidays a year that take lots of flights and are abroad maybe it's looking at if you have a garden what can you do with that beautiful green space to to change it to be more sustainable to put stuff in that's biodiverse maybe it's you don't have a lot of physical resources or time but maybe you have finances that you can support different sustainable initiatives locally or all around the world maybe you don't have any of that but you've got an email account and you can email a local representative about an issue that you're really passionate about I think it's just about doing something and never grow weary realize that in Romans 12 we see God asking us to live out our lifestyle and worship to him so everything every single thing that we do it's not because it's going back to that, it's not a good thing. It's not just good to care for the environment. It's a God thing. And I think when you flip everything, so whether it's lifestyle changes or whatever it might be, to be an act of worship, it just becomes so easy and it becomes so natural. Like we are built to worship God through everything. And when we do that, it's just a joy. It's a joy to do these sustainable things. It's a joy to campaign because you know you're doing it for the Lord and you know you're doing it for his glory and for his world. And I think that's what we just all need to do. That's not really one helpful tip. There's no silver bullet to saving the planet, but if we all did a little bit of this and a little bit of that and and a bit of this, we will make huge waves. Oh, well, Laura, thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you for this whole conversation. It's been brilliant to chat to you. And I'm sure we'll have you on again soon. And if not before, maybe we'll have you on as Dr. Laura Young in a few years. Oh, yes, please. Um, well, thanks and bye for now. Thank you very much. Great to hear from Laura. We, we are coming into land on this episode of Cross Section, but we're having another special episode next week, episode two of series five. Alicia, I was wondering, could you just tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, sure. So uh, Saturday, the 22nd of April is Stephen Lawrence Day. And in fact, this year marks 
30 years since his tragic uh, murder in London. Uh, and so next week, we have the wonderful Reverend Dr. Israel Olawolo Ilabanjana, i.e. the director of the One People Commission for the Evangelical Alliance, joining us talking about what is the significance of Stephen Lawrence's death and murder? How has the evangelical voice engaged on issues of race and racism? Uh, and kind of an overview of race relations in the UK. So a great conversation to have, probably a challenging and a difficult one, uh, but do join us for that. So that's next week. This Saturday is Earth Day and I challenge all of you, all of us to think about what is one thing we could do a bit differently to care for the planet around us and honour God as we do so. But that's it from us, the cross-section team of this first episode back of series five of cross-section. See you next week. Hi, it's Peter here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of cross-section. If you liked it, can I encourage you to click subscribe, review the podcast, share the episode on social media, or tell your friends so that they can enjoy it too. And don't forget, you can email us at cross.section at eauk.org. See you next time.